welcome to the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the founder and CEO of Say, Lainey Crowell. There are very few people who have experienced the media's shift to digital in the same way that Lainey Crowell has. Lainey was quite literally at the epicentre of that change. Upon graduating from college, Lainey moved to New York to pursue her dream of working in magazines. After working at both Lucky and Elle, Lainey became aware of the direction in which fashion and beauty were heading and subsequently took a role at digital publication Stylecaster as it launched in 2008. The success of that launch led to Estee Lauder headhunting Lainey and quite literally presenting her with a list of roles, asking, which one do you want? She then became executive director of online global communications for Estee Lauder and was responsible for the launch of all of the brand's social media channels and influencer marketing department. After five years at Estee, Lainey left and launched her own blog, The Moment, focusing on clean beauty. Listening to feedback from her growing audience and drawing on her own experiences, Lainey realised that there was a space in the market for a clean colour cosmetics brand that felt fun to use but also really performed. Say launched only 18 months ago and in that time, the brand has won over 10 really prestigious beauty awards and is now stocked in some of the world's largest beauty retailers, including Sephora, Goop and Cult Beauty. In this conversation, Lainey shares why she feels growing pains are both necessary and unavoidable, the difficulties she faced when raising funds for the brand, and how chasing an editor down the street led to her first industry role. So you are New York-based now, but I know that you grew up between Paris and California, so let's start there. What is your very, very earliest memory of beauty? That's a great question. So my mom worked in the Foreign Service and we, I was actually born in Colorado. We moved to China. That was our first um, uh-huh. uh, station, as they call it. I don't remember thinking about beauty when we lived in China. I don't think I understood and knew that word, but... I do think a lot about all the different faces and sights and things that I had never seen before. And it was really beautiful, you know, China in the mid eighties, um, was very different than it is now. I think about like the rice fields and how stunning those were. And, um, it was definitely a, a time, even though I was so young, I think about it a lot. Uh, I remember in middle school becoming aware of, you know, what people looked like and people being in quotes pretty. And I bought my first magazine, which was Allure with Amber Valletta on the cover. And I got in trouble for buying it. My dad (laughs) did not think that was appropriate. Um, But I do remember looking at her face and thinking that it was so beautiful And that definitely was the beginning of my love affair with magazines. When we moved to Paris, 
I would buy all the American magazines that I could. Um, I would even get the magazines you could find in London. And, you know, the pharmacies, the French pharmacies are on every corner. And it's just, it's really part of um, the culture there. It's not something that is fringe or superficial or vain. It's just part of the culture. And that I think is really interesting when you think about the differences, right, between, um, you know, the French culture, which is just very much, this is part of life. This is part of the beauty of life. This is part of the beauty of uh, people. So I guess that's a really long-winded answer of saying I can think of lots of moments that beauty uh, touched me and affected me. And um, I, I definitely was naturally a beauty junkie, though. My mom does not wear makeup, never taught me about beauty. I don't have that memory of like my mom putting on <laughs> makeup. Uh, my mom is very au naturel. And um, it was almost like I was kind of born with this affinity towards it. You've kind of given me the perfect segue because I wanted to talk more about that. I wanted to ask if you think that any of those locations that you were brought up in, because you were so young, do you think that they have influenced your approach to beauty as an adult? Obviously they did at the time, but you, you think you've kind of taken any of that with you now? Oh, for sure. I mean, the French way of beauty is intoxicating. Uh, I'm definitely, that's always what I'm always going for, whether or not it's subconscious or conscious. It's very effortless. It's, you know, you're nobody. And I think that is when people talk about that je ne sais quoi. It's that you can't tell that the person is trying. Mm -hmm. And it just feels really inherent and effortless. And uh, I've never gravitated towards that full face or, um, you know, extremely manicured look. I really like that. You know, you can't quite tell what someone's wearing. I've read that you moved to New York immediately after college to work in magazines. You've mentioned you had an affinity for those from a very yeah. early age. Was that what you had always wanted to do when you're a child? Is that what you thought you'd be working in when you grew up? So my mom and dad, you know, my mom was in the foreign service. My dad was a lawyer. They had no idea what to do with my love of fashion and beauty. And it was never a career mm -hmm. option or choice or, you know, I actually sketched fashion design since I was like 12. I had, um, I taught myself how to do it through books and I absolutely loved it. And my parents, I think, just thought it was kind of cute. You know, they never said, well, maybe this is something you should do since you do it all the time. Uh, but it wasn't actually until after college that I had one job in between college and New York. It was a job in LA. I worked for a movie producer and I was his assistant. It was actually really great training because they are so intense in the ent entertainment industry. And um, my like desk mate kind of the person that sat next to me was like you know you never read any of the scripts and that's your job that's what we're all doing you know and you never do it but you're always reading those magazines you know maybe that's what you should do 
And it was the first moment it ever even occurred to me that that was something that I could do. And I moved to New York, not knowing anybody. I talk a lot about the importance of networking because it's had such a huge impact on my career. And, you know, when I, when I think about in quotes networking, when I, when you move somewhere, not knowing anybody, it's like, I had done a little bit of that in LA. I had kind of just blanketed asked everybody, well, who do you know? And I, it was a friend of mine's friend, didn't know them who worked in HR at Gucci. Mm -hmm. And it was the mom of a woman who worked at the New York times who I had babysat for. And those were the only two leads I had. And I ended up getting an internship at Gucci through that one woman I mentioned. And the other woman who was actually a very well-known editor at the New York times, she basically like laughed at me and didn't reply to my emails. And then I went and walked to the New York times office and walked in and I called her from the lobby and I was like, I'm here. And she was like, I'm in a meeting. (laughs) And, uh, I followed up via email and she said, you know what, you can come in and meet me. And I went in and met her and she said, the only reason I'm meeting with you is because you came to my office. And, you know, what stuck to me from that meeting wasn't so much about what she talked to me about. I don't even really remember what we did talk about, but she definitely didn't help me get a job, but it was that the, you know, art of perseverance is really valuable. And so when I, I did get my first job from running into the editor in chief of Lucky Magazine, who I recognized because I yes. read, I still do love the editor's letters in magazines. And back then, every editor, they think they most of the time they still do have their picture mm-hmm. on the page. And I introduced myself to her and she uh, got me my first job as an assistant at Lucky Magazine. So that was just in a shop, wasn't it, that you ran into her? I believe it was J. Crew on Fifth Avenue. It could have been Banana Republic, but I don't think so. I think it was J. Crew. And you've just walked on up and said, Hi, I recognize you from the editor's letter. It took a minute. Like, I really had to like psych myself up for yep. it. She walked out of the store and I basically like ran after her on Fifth Avenue. And I said, Miss France, Miss France. She turned around and I said, You know, my name's. Laney, I moved to New York. I don't know anybody. My dream is to work in magazines and I just can't get my foot in the door. Do you have any advice for me? And she gave me her card. I emailed her and she wrote back and she said, you know, the number one thing that you need in this industry is fearlessness. And the fact that you introduced yourself to me tells me that you have that. And you should, I'm going to poke around and I'm going to have you come in for an interview. And so I ended up on the fashion news desk working for an editor. So from there, you worked as the American market editor for Elle magazine and fashion and beauty director at Stylecaster, moving sort of further and further into digital. Now, this was all happening around, I think, between 2006 to 2009, Can you talk me through that time and how it felt to kind of be at the epicenter of the fashion and beauty industry during the media's shift 
to digital? Because that's a huge moment for the industry. That's such a great question. No one really ever asked me about that. And it's so true. It was fascinating. This was like, you know, before I remember when Twitter launched, you know, and this idea of this really short communication, it was, it was, you know, really short number of characters initially, no photos. Um, and definitely there was no such thing as a blogger or anything Mm. that had influence like that. So it was really, really early, but I, and this is something I think I'm pretty good at. I saw the shift happening really far out. So I consciously made that choice to leave actually L accessories and go to Stylecaster because I didn't want to be in print and be left behind. And so when it was actually a former colleague of mine from Lucky called and invited me to help launch Stylecaster, it was like boot camp. You know, it was learning how to do wireframes, learning about social, learning about how to report in such a fast time frame. You know, I was writing this the blog essentially, and you know, you have to do a story every day. And I remember someone sent me something and I didn't pay attention to it right away because in magazines, you know, you're working three months out. You have time to, you know, look into something or you can wait on something, but in digital, you can't do that, which sounds so silly, but back then that was a big shift. Mm. And because I had seen that shift and because I was so interested in it and I really loved social, I thought social was so cool, you know, this frictionless communication between you and your reader, let's say, you know, now I think about it as our community or a customer, um, was so cool, you know, to go from that three month lead time to, and having no back and forth other than people writing in letters, it was just mind blowing and, and really, really neat. And because of that, that was when Estee Lauder called and said, you know, here's a list of jobs you can choose, which one is interesting to you. Um, because they really needed to beef up their digital department. So they essentially didn't have digital departments. So I started all of their social media channels. I started their influencer marketing department. I created all their online content and I was there for five years. We need to spend a bit of time on this because you've said it so casually, but that's huge. You were their executive director of online global communications. That's huge. And at that time, as you've just said, launching all of their social channels, which just, you know, you enter a brand now and they've got an established presence online. You set that up. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, when you work at a company that big and I talk a lot about that training and those foundations, because I think you do need to know the rules before you can break them. And Mm. that's what happens when you work at a company that is, you know, a a corporation, it's a big company. There's, I think I had to make like 10 decks explaining why we should launch on Instagram before we got to launch on Instagram. You know, and so when you have to think things through like that and you have to be really methodical about it and, um, 
explain what the return on investment's going to be, it just trains your brain in a way that you're really thinking long-term, you're thinking big, which are, I think, really important skills. Again, a perfect segue, because I wanted to ask if there were any lessons that you took from that time at Estee that you are finding you're still applying to your work now with Say. Endless. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was at the biggest, best beauty company in the world. So working with incredible talent, I would think those lessons Uh, there's two sides to that coin. You know, there's a lot of things that I learned there that of course influence say and why we are able to make such incredible products, why we've had the explosive growth that we've had. I attribute a lot of that to what I've learned at, uh, what I learned at Estee Lauder and in Big Beauty. I'd say the other side of that coin is, you know, when I was there, I, I did see this need for beauty being better. And I had no idea how it was going to materialize, but some of those things are things that, you know, we apply uh, to say for everything from, you know, our focus on sustainability to our ingredients, um, even to the content that we're creating and who we're showing in those images. Now, am I right in saying that it was around this time when you were at Estee that you started to look into your own health and what would eventually become kind of this whole wellness movement? Was that happening at the same time? Yeah, I, you know, it's it's similar. There was, it wasn't called wellness. Right. Um, It was definitely a really small niche movement happening on social but it was, I would say, just this kind of idea of I want to feel better mm-hmm. and I want to feel good. And I myself didn't feel good. I was tired. I I think we all know when we just don't feel like our optimal selves. I just actually had something happen a couple of weeks ago where I really wasn't feeling well. And um, I had to cut out coffee. Oh God. And it was like, this was really almost instant. When I cut out coffee, I started feeling better, but it's that same sort of thing where, you know, no doctor can, you know, there's nothing in um, medically that you can treat or that's in quotes wrong with you, but you just don't feel good. So, you know, paying attention to nutrition, cutting out processed foods, um, eliminating things that don't work for your body, makeup, um, meditating, all of those things I started diving into in this pursuit of feeling better. So you launched your blog the moment after leaving Estee and realizing that, you know, kind of what you were consuming was affecting how you felt. Was there a moment, a specific moment during which you said, okay, I actually need to leave this role and create something of my own? No, I I don't think so. I think that I, I inherently, my instincts, my soul was telling me that it wasn't the right place for me. I, I think that I definitely didn't know what I was looking to do next. 
-hmm. it was not, I didn't have like a, I'm going to leave and start my brand. Like a lot of people say, like, absolutely not. I left and I started consulting and that was actually a great um, opportunity for me to learn a lot about a startup because a lot number of the brands I worked for and helped were startups. So, you know, um, everything from watching founders flip flop in decision-making, um, working with brands that maybe weren't startups, but that didn't have a soul and didn't have, um, any direction. Um, all of those were, were really good learnings for me. And I started my blog, honestly, just out of my need to create. My, my husband actually was like, why are you doing this? Like you just started consulting. Like, why don't you just focus on that? And I said, you know, I just, I need to create. And my instincts are telling me this is what I need to do. And I think listening to your instincts is so important. It's definitely a skill that you have to hone. You know, we, ignore it so often that sometimes it can be kind of hard not to, or to be able to listen to it and hear what it's saying. So my instincts were telling me that I needed to do this. I definitely never started it with the intention of it becoming a big blog. Like it was, it was very much just a expression of my creativity and it was fantastic. It was so cool. I got to like interview all these amazing founders and have all these great conversations and create beautiful content. Um, it was really, it was really fun. As you've mentioned, the wellness movement wasn't really a thing then. It didn't have a name. Certainly wasn't anything near like what it looks like today. What were some of your big findings during that time when your own kind of wellness journey was in its infancy what were you learning from your audience and what were they learning from you so nutrition was huge mm-hmm. I just didn't know anything you know I didn't I started diving into plant-based but I still am now for the most part I definitely was eliminated a lot of things to see how that affected me um, I started meditating, which probably had the biggest impact out of anything. I struggle from anxiety, um, a lot. And at the time I was single, I didn't have kids. I was meditating twice a day for 20 minutes a day. Oh, I felt incredible. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, so, you know, it was, nothing groundbreaking, you know, but it wasn't anything extreme, but those just small shifts in honoring your body and your mind have, can make such a huge difference. It was in 2009, the 2019, sorry, that you launched Say. Yeah. What led up to that launch? Was this another thing where there wasn't a light bulb moment specifically, or was there a moment when you said, okay, I need to launch something? Oh yeah. There was definitely an aha moment. Um, so when I started the blog, you know, because of my background in magazines and because I lived in New York, I started receiving product to review from the very first day we launched. And it was, 
you know, overwhelming to some extent, you know, I was getting like 10, 20 boxes a day of product because there wasn't really any other clean beauty blogs out there. There were very few. Um, and I, we were talking about all sorts of things, but that was one of the main things that we were talking about. Um, and I had to create like a beauty closet in my apartment because I had so many products and it was, these shelves under my TV and I had a bin, like maybe 10 bins. It was like hair, body, face, bath, ingestibles, you know, that sort of thing. And one for makeup. And one night I went looking for some makeup and every bin was overflowing. It was like, there's so much stuff in each one. And then the bin for makeup was totally empty you know, maybe there was one or two things in there, but it was like dusty. And so it was this total visual moment of like, oh my God, there's nothing available here. And so I went out to dinner and then on my way home from dinner, I can remember it so clearly. I was like walking down the street and posting to Insta stories and saying, you know, if you could make something, what would you make? What brands do you like? I was just peppering them with questions. And I ended up staying really up late that night, like talking to people in the community. And what they said was what say is today, honestly. And it's where the name comes from. It's from our community saying what they wanted. Um, they wanted products that really work. And that's where we bring our big beauty expertise in. So we apply the same methodology to creating um, the products that we created at Estee Lauder. Um, so working with the very best luxury labs in the world um, that we're able to work with because of those relationships and that experience um, to save products, which is why, you know, you said they're game changing. They really are that they incredible really are. because of that. Um, they wanted products to be more accessibly priced. And this was something that I had not noticed because as I mentioned, I was receiving everything for free and I had been receiving everything since, you know, when you work in magazines, you get gifts. When you, when I worked at Estee Lauder, I wasn't going to go buy other makeup for the most mm -hmm. part. So that was given to me. And then the blog. So um, I hadn't noticed how expensive clean makeup was. Um and then they wanted it to be fun. You know, you think of clean beauty and it's whites and browns and greens and um, it's kind of serious or subdued. And, you know, you want it to feel like NARS. You want it to be fun and exciting and something that you get butterflies before you, you know, open something up or when you open your makeup bag, it's something you look forward to applying and makes you happy even it's, it's really almost like an accessory, you know, a little piece of yeah. fashion. Um, so, you know, that was really important. And then of course the sustainability part of it, which I'm personally, I'm super passionate about. Um, so those are, and that's, that was the moment. And that is what we're, is still our mission and, and view today. We call it the feel good five. Um, those are the five things that we, look through everything that we do at say through that lens. So what came next? You have this aha moment. You've mentioned that you had pre-existing relationships with these incredible labs, but what, I mean, what steps did you physically 
take to launch the brand. It's one thing to have a relationship with a manufacturer, but your list is a list of prerequisites as far as the formula is obviously going to be different to Estee just as an example. So how did you go about it? Well, I mean, there was a million steps between <laughs> then and launch. Yeah. You know, probably more than a million actually. Um, I, I would say one of the most important things I did and actually came to me in a meditation was recruit my head of product development. Mm -hmm. and her name kept coming to me over and over again. And I hadn't spoken to her in probably, I don't know, three or four years. And so I was able to get back in touch with her. And I was like, you know, this is, this is crazy and wild, but here's what I'm doing. And she almost instantly was like, I'm in. Um, She only wanted to be working and clean and, um, she's an, you know, really just a genius when it comes to product development. So I think recruiting, right. That's, that's one recruiting is super important. I think talent is a really big part of any business and something that I really focus on with every single hire that we, we do. Um, you know, creating your business plan and understanding your, the, you know, total market, I think is really important. So I did a lot of research and mapping out, you know, who, what does a competitive landscape look like? Um, you know, where, where is that white space? And I knew it because I worked in it and I was so almost, you know, part of me at that point that, you know, it was just putting it on paper was really important of looking at like, okay, and you know, where, where is that white space? Where, how do we want to position ourselves? Um, proving that the clean beauty market is a big market. That was a huge exercise. So, um, you know, I think now people, it's clear to people how big the opportunity is, but two three years ago um not so much you Mm know um and then fundraising of course so i coming from big beauty i was very clear in my vision that i wanted this to be a a big brand and um it was not a hobby for me so I needed to fundraise to be able to have that ability to accelerate. And I'd never fundraised before. So when you ask me about the steps, I think a lot of them are really instinctual at this point for me, but fundraising was not. I had never done it before. I didn't know anybody who had, I was, you know, definitely was not part of that startup world. I'm in New York. That's also different than being in San Francisco. So uh, that was a huge learning curve for me. It was really difficult. Um, And, uh, you know, part of that is because I'm a woman and a lot of venture dollars do not go to women. I think when I say not a lot, I mean, you know, 4% go to women. So... (sighs) 
you have to work a lot harder to raise money. And, you know, and I was starting at zero because I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any relationships there. So again, it was just the same thing as when I moved to New York, not knowing anybody. I started my list and on that list, it was like, you know, one person, then two people. And I would ask them for a coffee or have a call and would tell them what I was doing. And then would ask to be, you know, is there anyone you could introduce me to? Is there anybody you have it, you know, any advice you could give me? And that list would grow and grow and grow. And it's really redundant. You're telling your story over and over and over again, and it's your baby, it's your dream. So it's really personal and people are poking holes in it all day. You know, that's, you know, the amount of times you're going to hear like, no, maybe not so much in those words, but you're going to hear essentially no, or that's a bad idea, or I wouldn't do that, or um, it, you have to really develop a thick skin. It's a, it was exhausting. Let's talk more about having to develop a thick skin because obviously going from one of the largest heritage brands on the planet to then sitting at the helm of a startup, you've talked about the shift in operations and obviously having to do all these things that you've never done before, but there's a huge mental shift attached to that as well, of course. So how did you, how did you reconcile that? Well, I was always an entrepreneur and that was probably, I joke that I was like always in trouble when I worked at Estee Lauder because I was always like pushing it. I wanted things to be done faster. I wanted to be at the forefront. I wanted to be first. I wanted to be the best all these things that are really attributes of an entrepreneur. And I think in, I think they loved that about me, you know, they were, that's the, what they wanted. It just isn't conducive to a big corporation. You know, you're on a Titanic, you're on the Titanic and I wanted to be moving like a speedboat. Mm -hmm. So actually it was just, I think I finally landed where I I should have been. You know what I mean? Like all of a sudden I was in my element. You launched, say, with Mascara 101, Brow Butter and Liquid Lip Balm. What was the reception like on launch? Were consumers immediately receptive to what you were doing or was it kind of a slow burn? Uh, It was immediate. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we we launched and – it was fantastic. I mean, we had, you know, teased it a little bit. So we'd had an article in Women's Wear Daily that was announcing that the brand was coming. Um, Jerry Hirsch, who's our creative director, she has a really engaged following. She had been talking about it. People were expecting it and were really excited. So launch was incredible. And then we followed it with two more products in just a couple months later. And the response to that was explosive. How does the product development process work for you? You've mentioned how instrumental your community were in terms of a lot of decision-making, particularly with the launch of the brand itself. Are they as instrumental with product development? Are you constantly thinking about what's next or are you asking, okay, what do you guys want to see? Yeah, so we have a private Facebook community called the Clean Beauty Crew, Mm -hmm. and we are super 
connected to them. So they influence like everything. Like we even, we just developed um, a piece of merch and we showed them a couple of directions it could go and they got to choose the one that they wanted. Um, they always tell us what they're looking for and what we should develop next. Um, they even help us choose our models. So that's always where we start. Um, we say, you say it, we create it. After that, we definitely do some competitive research to make sure that we're creating something that is totally new. You know, there's no reason for us to be creating something that already exists. Um, I think that's just wasteful and doesn't go with our mission of sustainability. So that's a really important part of it. And, and then we just go from there and you know, also packaging is an important part for us because we, you know, when they, when, when people say you're paying for packaging, when it comes to luxury beauty, it's true. Like, you know, it's, it, it's not to say that packaging isn't valuable. It's a lot of times it's really, really beautiful and stunning. And if that makes you happy, you know, go for it, invest in that. But um, we, we don't, you know, create elaborate packaging and we're looking to make sustainable options. So packaging takes a long time for us because we want it to be, you know, post-consumer recycled plastic or a bioresin or glass or aluminum. Um, you know, I'm now looking into ocean found plastic as a material that we work with. So that also really goes hand in hand and is parallel with the product development process. You launched, it's only something like 18 months ago, which is crazy <laughs> given the um, the audience and how everything's going. It Say is now available in Sephora, through Cult Beauty, through Goop, major, major beauty retailers. How has that level of visibility and growth change the way that you operate? Great question. Wow. So, you know, Sephora is really a major game changer. Mm. They are the biggest, the best. And we launched in every single store in the US and Canada. It's crazy. And of course, online. So it was a huge launch and we spent almost a year getting ready for it. And that's the amount of work that goes into launching at a retailer that size. So we definitely had to grow the team. That was really an important part of getting ready for that. Um, and just put in really long hours. The team, I mean, it was everything for us like we could not fail that just wasn't an option so everybody on the team worked so hard and learned a lot you know it's like learning a whole new language working with a retailer every retailer has its own set of words and jargon and abbreviations and um, way of doing things processes everything from the way something shipped to you know how you describe it online is um is work i mean you talk about these learnings what were some of the biggest challenges to come from such quick growth well i think that the word growing pain 
people interpret that different ways. And I think what is important to think about is that you're going to have the pain no matter what. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as growing without having pain. That's just like everything in life, like changes. Um, and so growing pains are probably just going to happen no matter what. And I'm trying to think of like, you know, what I could, how I could describe the learnings, but I don't think we did anything that we wouldn't have done, you know, again. And that's something that I think is really important for everyone to remember. And I talked to my daughters about this is that it's like one of my favorite coaches quotes, actually, when you know better, you do better, Mm -hmm. but you can't judge yourself for not knowing, you know, you didn't know. So, you know, would I have gone into the warehouse that we launched with again? No, it was awful. They were horrible. It was like the worst experience. Um, But we didn't know any better. And it was what we could afford at the time. And now we're in the best warehouse in the US. So it's all good. And they're wonderful. But um, I guess my, if I were to look back, like, that one, for example, would probably be to do more research and understand that decisions you make at the beginning are going to be with you for a little bit, you know, um, partners you choose, agencies, consultant, maybe not consultants, but definitely, you know, the agencies you partner with and, um, any partner, you know, your warehouse to your digital marketing agency to whomever there are consequences. Um, And I think references are incredibly important. People have kind of stopped doing references and I don't know why. Um, And now I do a lot of references. Like I talk to, you know, lots of people who have worked with somebody or who have had experience with them before I sign on the dotted line. You have been a part of the beauty industry for over a decade now. Over that time or even just over the last few years what have been some of the biggest changes that you've seen within the beauty industry i mean inclusivity for sure mm-hmm. um i think that the clean movement is the biggest change that i've seen i it's so fascinating to me how educated people are on ingredients and I spend people who are really young, like when I was, I had no idea how to read an ingredient list. So I think that's so cool. And I love that. And I, that's, I think the biggest change and, um, and then just this holistic approach to beauty is a really big change that it's not just how it makes you look on the inside. It's how it makes you feel in all aspects. And you know, that goes back to what I was saying, what we, what we call the feel good five at say is, you know, how, what makes you feel good? Like that's beauty, you know? And does it feel good to throw something in the trash? To me, that doesn't make me feel good, you know? So being able to recycle it or, um, I don't know if your box came with it, but when, you get one of our, you get our products from our warehouse, from our direct to consumer. Like if you order it on our website, you get, we don't pad the box with anything. It comes with a little pouch of cotton, cotton balls, balls organic, and you open up the 
bag that's made out of paper and you can use those cotton balls and then they can go in your compost if you have a compost and they biodegrade and so little things like that that I'm really proud of and I think people really appreciate and I don't know if they would have necessarily appreciated that five years ago. I did receive the cotton balls and I'm a I love clever copy and I I feel like it said these are cotton balls use them yeah I was like yep perfect (laughs) happy with that yeah snappy and to the point so those are some of the changes that we have seen what changes do you think we can expect to see from beauty over the next couple of years I think that beauty is going to become much more um gender neutral I think Mm -hmm. that you know we just Uh, we just cast a male model in our upcoming launch. And um, I think that it's just going to be really, whoever wants to use it can use it. And that's just is what it is. Um, And then I think sustainability is going to become really incredibly important and on the forefront of every decision that brands are making. At least that's my hope. That's what we do at Say. Lainey, my final question, what is next for Say? Uh, We have a really exciting launch on June, mid-June. I'll say that. (laughs) And it is really special and beautiful. And um, I think you will particularly love it. That was Lainey Crowell, founder and CEO of Say, which you can find on Instagram at Say Beauty. To read this interview, you can visit glowjournal.com and for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at gemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me. 